Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we interview those that's in the know within the music industry and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. Right now with me, I have a woman that needs no introduction. She has the same background for everybody from Melissa Morgan, BB and Q Band, Cash Flow, Unlimited Touch, Bobby Brown. Came out on Def Jam as the first female artist with the raw album of cuts such as My Love Is So Raw featuring Nikki D, Just Call My Name, Sweet Talk, I Need Your Lovin'. Then she covered Just My Luck by The Deal. We're going to get into all that and more with the one that only Miss Allison Williams. Allison, thank you for coming on to the podcast. How you doing, honey? I appreciate you taking the time out. I'm doing well. Thank you. We are here on a Labor Day Monday, and we want you to have, I want all of the folks that are, that, that are chiming in, and that when they do see this live, uh, in just a little bit, you know, after we do the post-production and what have you, I want them to have a wonderful, wonderful day when they see this. I want them to know that we are having a great day, and we are celebrating life. We're selling the op celebrating the opportunity to be celebrated. You are doing what you do, and you are shining a light on artists like myself. And uh, right now, in this COVID uh, atmosphere, that's not always something that's easy to do. So I'm thankful and grateful to be here with you today. Oh, I appreciate you. Most importantly, I appreciate our good friend, Alex Chances, for putting us together, getting us connected. Yes, shout out to Alec. That is my good baby boy, buddy. I love him. Ooh. And you Ain't can catch like Alex Chances. Yep. And you can catch his interview along with others on all streaming platforms and at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J85. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get it started. So your dad was a famous trumpeteer, band leader. Now, were you going around with him doing club gigs and singing was always something you wanted to do? Or did you have another career in mind before singing got the book? Well, you know what? It, it wasn't that I had another career in mind. I always thought that show business was going to be my path, but I did have other things I wanted. I mean, as a little kid, you grow up, you know, what do you want to be? I want, want to be a nurse. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a this. I wanted to be a gymnast. I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast. But um, two things were standing in my path. Uh, I kept growing. And, you know, gymnasts are this big, but I was going to be this big. Mm. Also, um, back in the day, um, training for gymnastics was not readily available. Now you can find schools and camps and what have you that are readily available. And my parents were already paying for me to go to parochial school and paying for uh, music lessons and dance and things like that. So I felt, you know, let me just stick with this and I'll work it out because I don't want to have to cause them any more financial burden. Uh, because you had to go away to gymnastic camp. It was a different thing. Um, so I said, well, maybe I'll be a figure skater. I'll go to the Olympics as a figure skater. And then it was like, well, you don't like the cold enough to really do figure skating. But I did learn how to skate right there in Harlem at 110th Street. Shout out to Harlem. And um, I think I hold, when I look back at, on it now, Jarrell, my thing was I wanted to know what it felt like to fly. I wanted weightlessness. I wanted light. I wanted to be able to transcend some anything that was holding me to to the earth. And as you've seen gymnasts, how they fly. And as you've seen figure skaters, how they fly. And um, like I said, I, I just there were obstacles for a little black girl growing up in Harlem. 
So um, the dance what became the thing. I said, if I dance, I can fly. And so I began to study, and my parents um, supported that. Uh, started with all of the uh, local community um, opportunities that were available from uh, uh, Mary Bruce to Ruth Williams to uh, LaRock Bay, Alatunje, all of those different um, dance uh, places, places that taught dance, uh, ethnic dance, African dance, various forms of dance, tap, ballet, etc. And then when we realized that I was serious about it, we were able to um, get with um, Arthur Mitchell at the Dance Theater of Harlem. And uh, working with Mr. Mitchell uh, very early on uh, gave me a really good foundation. Um, and then some time later, when he was able to establish the actual school of the Institute of Harlem, I was able to go as a scholarship student and really go ahead and pursue my career as a dancer. Oh. Um, and, but at the same time, I was singing and doing what I did. Um, I don't think they realized, and when I say they, I mean my parents, what the what was developing, which, is, which was a triple threat situation. Um, and I remember being uh, 1977, maybe, mm -hmm. I'm thinking circa. I was uh, a, a member of the um, uh, Hal Jackson's Talented Team, same year as Melissa Morgan. And that year was their first year being co-ed. So Lenny Green was in there singing. If anybody is from New York and knows The Quiet Storm, they know um, who Lenny Green is. But anyway, um, I digress. Um, I went on to, um, to do this uh, basically talent pageant, talent beauty pageant, whatever it was. And it gave my father the, the, the entree to know he had been paying for tuition <clears throat> and, uh, and for uh, music lessons and dance lessons. But he didn't know I could sing. He wasn't familiar with, you know, what that, you know, my level of performance at that time. So he immediately got with his, um, his, uh, a musical director and his arranger, um, and Mr. Howard Johnson, and said, we got to get some charts for my baby. She can really sing. So they started making charts. My father had a 21-piece swing band, and that was my first I guess, experience with live music. So my live music experience was this big the whole time. Uh, by the time I got to be a teenager and realized that there was a rhythm section, you know what I'm saying? And that, you know, I, and I began to perform with smaller bands, local bands. I was totally like, well, where's the, where are the woodwinds? You know what I'm saying? Because I was, I was used to something so much bigger. Um, but it was a great experience. And, it, and it, it's, it's molded me and, um, and allowed me to be who I am now. Um, I did go around with my dad. I did go around and sing on bandstands with him. I was also the the, uh, the the band book girl. You know, I made sure all the bandstands were set up and and the, and, the, and the music books with all the charts was set up. So I had all of that behind the scenes experience as well as having an opportunity to step up to the mic at a very young age and sing some music that was very mature uh, beyond my uh, my my age. Uh, at that time and, um, and to delve into the Great American Songbook. So that's where I came from. So to be signed to Def Jam as an R&B artist and been given an R&B contract on a rap label, um, kind of, I look at the things I've done between the dance and the theater and the, uh, and the music and I'm the Forrest Gump of this business. Right. Because yeah. I've been everywhere. I've yep. been everywhere, every different kind and every different one. And, um, and it's all um, served me so well. 
to make me a well-rounded artist and I'm thankful for the opportunity you know that, that, that God placed me placed that music in me and place and then put me in all the places that I need to be and I'm still I'm continuing to do that even in a COVID environment as I sit here and tell you right now Terrell the blessings God is just amazing he just is yes, and if you just is. let him do what he does and watch his hand you will always be amazed Yes, yes, I speak that. I know that living proof. Now, you said that you did it all behind the scenes up front with your dad. So when going and performing in clubs, it probably felt a little bit easier for you since you were performing with bigger pieces. And you know how in nightclubs is very condensed. You probably maybe have a drummer, a bassist, a keyboardist, the artist, and then maybe two or three background singers. So going into that environment, how did performing with that big swing ensemble early on have you coming into the club saying, hey, I can do this, and this is far more easier? Totally, totally the opposite. Not having the support of all of that band, not to mention these, these men were, were, were uh, veterans in the industry. Do you know what I'm saying? This band was a band of people that went out and played with Duke Ellington and came on back. Went out and played with uh, Count Basie Band and came back and they always had their chair in my dad's band. Uh, he was based out of Harlem from the Kennedy Center where they rehearsed in Harlem and they were the premier uh, big band uh, for I, I'd say at least 25 years um, in the tri-state area and beyond. But when I stepped out, of course, I was a little nervous because like I said, I'm used to having this much of a support, now I've got this much, and I'm singing in a different genre. I didn't know a lot of uh, R&B music. I didn't, you know, we played everything in the house. There was jazz, there was smooth, um, easy listening music, there was classical, there was gospel, um, uh, uh, and, and there was R&B, but mainly jazz, and mainly straight ahead jazz. So, um, I was, the first song I learned to sing as a, as a young R&B singer was Evelyn Champagne King's Shame. That'll give you an idea. That's what I went to figure out as a, as, a, as, a, as a song to sing in the club when I first started doing nightclubs. Not with the big band, but with a small band of, of, of uh, musicians that were my age. and We were you know, doing our thing. Um, little that I know, later on, I'd be singing background on Evelyn Champagne King's Love Come Down and, uh, and uh, 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 there's one other single that she had that was really hot. I can't call the name of her. Is it I'm in but, Love? You know, I'm in Love. There you go. I'm in Love. That's it. I'm in Love and Love Come Down. Um, but yeah, Shame, uh, uh, Shame was the first uh, song that I learned as an R&B singer to sing with a club quote on you know, quartet you know bass drums like you said guitar and keyboards and uh did we have no the band members sang background so when i finally got a chance to actually have background singers that was yet another platform that i climbed up onto and into because we didn't always have background you had to know how to sing the song and sell it with or without the background right if you didn't have a band member that could sing a drummer could sing keyboard player could, could chime in Right. So, um, and you have to remember, uh, I was blessed because we had some really good singers that could sing lead, but just because your band members can sing and do the background with you doesn't mean that they're really, you know what I'm saying, they're, they're doing the support thing. So it's just good enough. But then when you realize what real background singers can do, 
that's a whole nother thing. Right. It's a whole nother thing. And it's a whole nother, um, it is a level of, of, of uh, how can I put it? It is a level of um, performance and discipline that a lot of people throw away. They think, oh, this is background singer. No, honey, there's a whole nother thing that goes along with that particular unit of the band, that particular uh, personnel that makes it happen for the lead performer that nobody else can do. Right. And it has to do with not just knowing your notes, not just knowing the choreography, but knowing the discipline, knowing the poise, and knowing the etiquette that goes with being a background singer and what you what you are responsible for on that stage while you're doing it. And people don't see it because they make it look so seamless. And we're smiling while we're doing it. So you think it's easy, but it's a whole other thing. And right. I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to not only do studio work, but uh, some live work as well. That's two different stories, too. Um, everybody who can sing background in the studio is not somebody who's going to uh, excel on stage. And, and vice versa. Everybody who knows live performance is not, uh, might not be the one that, that you want on your studio session. So there are disciplines that, that, that I've had a chance to um, delve into and to, uh, and to uh, really hone my craft that, um, like I said, it makes me who I am today. Right. And you mentioned Evelyn Champagne King. I'm in love and love come down. I want to say RP to Kashif. Kashif, very well-respected producer, produced mm -hmm. great cuts. Over the, he gave Whitney Houston her first big hit, May She Rest mm -hmm. in Peace, You Give Good Love, and it was co-written by Lala. And you Lala, that's my baby girl. And you mentioned background singing, and uh, I was thinking about the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, where they had Darlene Love, Lisa Fisher, Mary mm -hmm. Clayton, and Judith Hill, and just thinking about how you were saying the poise that you have to have as a background singer and the discipline to where you do your job very well, but at the same time, you don't outshine the lead person in front. And then also a lot of the well-known singers that we know of cut their teeth singing backgrounds. Luther Vandross was singing background for David Bowie on the Young Americans album, then for Change, and then look at what happened with Luther. And I can go on and on about the list of singers who cut their teeth singing backgrounds or doing session work. Well, let me just give you a little background, uh, uh, a little background uh, information or trivia. I, uh, while I was in high school, I, um, I, I went to a Catholic uh, high school in, in the Bronx called Sacred Heart of Mary. Uh, it was formerly called Mother Butler, and they changed and melded together. And by the time I got there with my crew, it was Sacred Heart of Mary. And I encountered a young woman by the name of Fran J. Francis Johnson. We became great friends, and we decided we were going to start a band, start a group, or start a singing group. The group was called New Rose, and we were able to recruit a young Lisa Fisher to be the third of New Rose. And uh, going on from there, we, you know, we did our local gigs and private events and what have you. And then, of course, we split up and did whatever we have done. Lisa, in her own um, in her own uh, realm of, of background vocalist and now lead vocalist with her uh, with her with the next chapter of her of her uh, career, uh, Fran went into not only uh, the corporate world uh, but also came back out and went into the theater world and, and started on Broadway and off Broadway and have done, has done great things and I continue to do what I did and what I do. But um, just to, to, to as a you know as everything is so connected. Um, 
somewhere down the line, when Lisa went to singing with Luther, I ended up getting a contract with Capitol Records for a group called High Fashion. And that group was uh, Allison Williams, myself, um, Melissa Morgan, and a young man out of Detroit named Eric McClintock, who was uh, managed by Dennis Coffey, who had his own Motown and uh, his own music and, and his own uh, uh, realm to, to speak of. And uh, we did a group called High Fashion. And um, that was uh, one of the groups that had been produced by Fred Petrus. He had High Fashion, the BB&Q band, and Change with Luther Vandross as lead singer. So if uh, you could just see how all of those, all of that is weaved together. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was a very exciting time and continues to be. But I mean, back in, you know, when I was cutting my teeth as a background vocalist, as a lead vocalist, and the different opportunities that were afforded to us to be able to be on the front line with some of the greatest um, voices of our time. Right. And you mentioned Dennis Coffey. Is this the same Dennis Coffey that put out Scorpio on Sussex? Which yes, was the label of Mr. Clarence absolutely. Avant, who is from North Carolina, Climax, but lived in New Jersey. And we know him from Sussex. Rest in peace, Bill Wilbers. And he gave us Taboo Records, which gave us Alexander O'Neill, Sherelle, and pretty much gave us the production work of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. All of that, yes. So Dennis Coffey had been uh, working with Motown for many, many years, and then he came into his own, and then he was obviously managing artists, and he managed a young man named um, Eric McClintock out of Detroit. And Eric was our male singer with high fashion. Wow. And then you're missing Melissa Morgan, and I'm going to throw in a connection with Hush Productions. You also did backing vocals for Miss Melba Moore, correct? All of that. We were all doing it. Let me tell you, when we first did high fashion, um, and, and it was a, uh, it was produced by, um, by, uh, uh, um, I just said his name and now I can't say it again. Uh, but anyway, the gentleman that produced uh, high fashion, uh, um, uh, oh, it's right there. I can't. At any rate, he, he found the incredible, uh, Fonzie Thornton to write songs and Fonzie, um, was the songwriter and uh, Kashif was part of it. At any rate, I remember uh, being asked on the day we found out that we were going to be the singers. Uh, I was hired, Eric was hired, uh, Lilo, if people remember Lilo, Lilo was also auditioned, but he did not, he got his own deal. He did not come into high fashion. But that night they asked us, would you like to do a, a, a vocal session in the studio? And we were like, sure, because we were young and we wondered, well, Miss Melba Moore is uh, going to be doing this and we're going to put you on some background vocals. So, you know, I was very calm and cool and collected. And I said, oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And then I went into the ladies room and went, wow, are you kidding me? I had seen Pearly. I had seen Timbuktu. I had watched Melba Moore be the triple threat that I dreamed of being. Theater, stage, television, uh, recording, the whole bit. And, and then I was going to sing background on her music. Oh, my God, it was a dream come true. So all of that, we were all doing it at the same time. Me, Melissa Morgan, Audrey Wheeler. Audrey Wheeler and I had a, a company called AW Square. Audrey Wheeler and Allison Williams. And we were singing background on everything. We were contract singers. We, uh, we, and, and, and the thing about Audrey and I is, Audrey had already been doing live and studio work, but when I came in and brought Audrey on board with my situation, I was bringing us into a realm that most of the well-known and in-demand 
session singers didn't really want to touch because rap was brand new. And they looked at rap kind of like, mm, who are these folks? What is that? And they really kind of, you know, got a, they didn't, they didn't naysay it, but they were kind of side eyed it, you know what I mean? But I went straight on ahead. And so with Fat Boys and Curtis Blow and Sweet G and, uh, and AJ Scratch, and there's so many uh, iconic rap songs that we provided the vocals from. Basketball, If I Rule the World, um, all of that. Oh, you gotta believe you're me. telling me something I didn't know. I did not know right. you did back the vocals for If I Rule the World, those early golden era hip hop classics. Before oh, Lauren Hill, I was the hook girl for that. I was oh, also the hook for They're Playing Basketball. That's me and Audrey Wheeler. If people don't know who Audrey Wheeler is, she was one half on the singing end of Unlimited Touch. She is married to Mr. Will Downing and sings background with uh, Miss Shaka Khan. So, um, but she's appeared on everything. Freddie Jackson. I mean, Audrey is one of those background singers that you knew her just as well as you knew the person that she performed for and with. She had that kind of... Uh, you know, she she had she had laid a foundation that that gave her that kind of um of of, uh, of notoriety as a background singer, session and live. So uh, we were doing it back in the days that we put those vocals down. Yes, before Lauren Hill. Yes, yes, uh, basketball is still a song that's that that uh, that holds its own. You know what I'm saying? In terms of, I can't tell you if any kid under 10 years old. I can walk up to and say, you know the song basketball. And they go, yeah, man, play, and they'll sing it. And then I say, I sing that song. And their eyes just get big like saucers. So it's the one one of the things that relative right and you with the young generation right and you mentioned lilo and the lilo she was referring to people with lilo thomas his album on hush oh man i just want to make sexy girl i'm in love that hush doesn't get enough credit for all of the hits they put out from melissa to freddie to lilo to melba i sang background on that i sang background with melba and just you know it's like like you said it was a way to cut your teeth and to really um get yourself uh moving forward every opportunity led to uh the next opportunity and and it was wonderful Mm -hmm. and how did you end up singing backing vocals for the bad boy of r&b mr bobby brown once again, a lot of things came by uh, recommendation, and uh, that was produced by, uh, oh gosh, you know, sometimes I just can't stand up. First of all, let me go back and tell you about the, the producer I was speaking of was Fred Petrus. Okay, got that. Now, let's voice forward to where you asked Larry, Larry from- uh, Larry, Larry Blackman from Cameo off Larry the King Black of Stage album. Cameo. Yes, he produced that particular album, thank you so much, for uh, Bobby Brown. And I had a, a, a relationship with Larry, uh, being a, a fellow Harlemite, and also um, through uh, the through George Faison uh, and another friend of mine who was a, a, a dancer who had done work with uh, with him and uh, and and Fred Frank Hatchett. It just it's just. It's like you're in the circle and your name eventually gets picked for various things. So he was doing this project and he called me to come and do background. It was happened to be Bobby Brown. And this was way before I met Bobby Brown. It was just, it was a gig, but I had a chance to do it. I think one of the singles from the album was called Girl Next Door. I remember being on that Girl Next Door. That's what I remember. 
Wow. So a lot of the times doing your backing vocals work is primarily referral only, or did you cold call and say, hey, got any sessions available? Or was it a mix of both? Well, you know, it's just like it is now um, in, or in any uh, situation. If you have a relationship, and that's why it's so important to know how to forge relationships. If you know how, if you have relationships, then if it's looking like you're looking for something to do or in the need of something to do, you can then call and say, hey, listen, um, I just need you to know, I'm, I'm, you know, whatever's going on in my A, B, and C life, um, I need you to look out. And if you hear of anything, give me a call. Or, um, or it can come from recommendation. Um, when you do good quality work and you're dependable and you're on time and you get the work done, people will call you. When I, when I was working with the Fat Boys and that whole organization, they did not know how their monies were being spent. Uh, a lot of times with the rappers, because this was all new and everybody was just feeling their way through, you come to the studio, the first thing they were doing was ordering up a bunch of food, smoking some weed, and then hopefully getting the job done. And here come the background singers, who were usually some young ladies that they probably met around the way, they had, you know, girlfriends or whatever, and they had promised them, I'm gonna get you on a record, I'm gonna make a star out of you. You know, it's like these girls couldn't sing their way out of a paper bag with both ends open. Not to say they weren't good people, I'm just trying to tell you, they weren't professional singers. When I came on the scene and was able to be, bring uh, an Audrey Wheeler, a, a, a Fonda Ray, a Jocelyn Brown, a Lisa Fisher, and all of these incredible singers to sing background, and come in and hit it, like come in, go in the booth, and find out what we gotta sing, and hit it, and if we ate, we ate, we weren't doing a whole bunch of drugs anyway, so if, you know, whatever it was, but that was, you know what I'm saying, that was how it did, and they were like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me it doesn't have to cost us a gazillion dollars to get these, these tracks down? We can do two and three songs a night and get it? After that, they were calling AW Square all the time. They were calling me all the time. I can remember times when I would say, well, listen, um, if the session is on Wednesday, we can't do it Wednesday because Audrey's out of town or I can't get Lisa or I can't. So they'd be like, we'll wait. When they get back in town, give us a call. And they would just wait. It was just that much to be on point, on top, and get a sound and get something that was incredible and save the money. So yeah, people will wait for the, the for quality. And that's mm -hmm. what we experienced. Yep. That's and, what we experienced. Yep. And rule number one on one, people do not burn bridges. Do not have people, don't treat them like you're above them because you never know when you're going to need them. Absolutely. Going up the ladder, you'll meet the same people coming down. Yep. But if, if you do it well, you never have to come down. Yep. Definitely that. And you mentioned Fonda Ray. Is this the same Fonda Ray that sang Touch Me All Night Long before Kathy Dennis recorded it? And over like a fat rat, peas in a pod. The very same Fonda Ray. Oh, wow. Wow, you definitely... So you understand that we were all doing our thing. We were doing backgrounds. We were doing leads. We had... Uh, uh, what do you call it? We had studio um, studio sessions and studio projects where sometimes we were the vocal but not the face of the of the project. Sometimes the, the project didn't have a face. It was just a radio record that was going to get play. And then you might be able to do some track dates at the various clubs because there were so many clubs that were, uh, you know, uh, that you could go and play. I mean, Bonds International, uh, the Funhouse, uh, Studio 54, the Garage. It was, it, you could work. 
you know what I'm saying? It was about work. So there was Fonda Ray, like I said, there was uh, Johnson Brown, and there was the Lisa, well, Lisa was doing her background thing with various people, and uh, and myself, and, and, and Audrey, and so it was just, it was, everybody was, everybody was working. We were on our grind. And everybody was eating. And you're missing Johnson Brown, and you're somebody else's guy. Mm-hmm. We were, not only did we work together, but we're dear friends. And her daughter, uh, Kay Swana, is my goddaughter. And it was just those kind of relationships. You know what I mean? We, 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 laid the, we laid the foundation for who is now doing whatever it is they're doing. We were the ones that laid it. And, and we're thankful and grateful to those who laid it before us mm, so yeah. that we could stand on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Studio 54. I did an interview years ago with Tom Moulton. He was telling me stories about how the limbs people will go just to get in Studio 54. I mean, husbands were leaving wives outside and vice versa. I mean, now Rogers wrote Freak Out after getting rejected right. in Studio after 54. After getting rejected. Can you imagine getting rejected from Studio 54 and write a song that can carry your entire career? <laughs> right. Yeah, because I think it was Grace Jones had invited him and the late Bernard Edwards into Edwards. Studio 54. And they she didn't know that they were outside and the doorman wouldn't let him in. And it was uh it rhymes with puck and it begins right. with an F. But they changed right. it to be family friendly and chic and now <laughs> has been rocking before then, Ever since since. then, you know, with his work with Duran Duran, Madonna, the list goes on and on with all the artists that now has worked with. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a connection with Curtis Blow to Def Jam. You know, Curtis Blow was managed by one of the co-founders of Def Jam, Mr. Russell Simmons. So you put out a single on Profile in 86. It was released on Def Jam in 87. So getting signed to Def Jam, were you kind of worried that maybe my styling wouldn't fit with a hip-hop label because, you know, with the profile of Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, LL, so on and so forth, did you feel kind of out of place getting signed to a predominantly rap label? So let me tell you what really happened <laughs> since I was there. Um, Kurt, uh, Russell was managing Curtis Blow. And we were going back and forth in the studio. Curtis and I met. We had known each other. Um, we had been in the same circle as children, but we didn't meet. We didn't really come together until we were adults. I was um, attending City College um, in the City University of New York. Russell had just left City College. I don't know whether he had graduated or whether he just left, but I know he had just left. And I met Curtis, and we uh, established a friendship. And what Kurt, what Russ, what Curtis didn't know is Curtis had an adult audience um, beyond his, uh, you know, counterparts, his rap counterparts that he didn't know about. Uh, it's kind of like how people um, really, uh, an adult audience really latched onto the Fresh Prince and and uh, and uh, 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 Will Smith. You know what I mean? It was rap, but it was it was cool with grown folks. And Curtis didn't know it. So Curtis and I started. Uh, doing uh, a kind of like a service to each other. I would take him into the circles uh, in the New York City area where the grown folks really loved what he was doing and were down with him, but he didn't know what that was. And he would take me to the fever. 
So I would take him to the cellar and Mikhail's the Sweetwaters, and he would take me to the Bronx of the Fever, where you know Cool Herc and Bismarcky and 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 and, and all of these different um, rap icons were, and that's how I got involved. Um, Curtis began to take me into the studio and asked me to do his background vocals for all his songs. Meanwhile, like I said, Russell was managing him, so we became like a and Larry Smith was producing, so we were like a little quartet of, uh, of what was going on. David D and you know we were we were we were making music and making it happen um, at, a, at, a, at a grassroots level. But I never thought that I wasn't going to fit in because I heard Russell in before he ever came to be. I'm getting ready to put together the dopest, most underground label, and it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be other. So I was like, okay, cool. I knew I was going to be a part of that regardless of what my the thoughts of what I where I really needed to be I was a jazz singer that's what I came to, to do but I learned R&B and hearing what gospel could be you know so I was just willing to do you know we were doing dance music and, and, and hustle music and you know I I didn't I didn't put myself in one particular category and I, and I knew that I would be in in my family when Def Jam came. Um, just before Def Jam could come together, the Capitol record deal came with Fred Petras, which is high fashion, change, and BBQ. So I told Russell, I said, I have an opportunity to be on Capitol Records. To me, that's like looking in the face of Nat King Cole and Natalie Cole and all those great people that I came up on. And so he said, do what you gotta do. And, I'm, and, and I'll be here when, you know, when you're done. So when we finished and came out of high fashion, he said, I need something to do with my artist so she's not just languishing. So he put me on profile. And he put me over there. That's where Run DFC was. He had, you know, a relationship. So they put me over there so at least we could make some music and keep working. Um, so I had an opportunity to do a single, uh, which is a cover of the Pointer Sisters song, Yes We Can Can. And it's kind of, I guess the best thing I could say is it's a kind of like a go-go beat before we really knew in New York what Go-Go was. We put it like that. So we did Yes We Can Can, and that came out, and it, it garnered some airplay and some gigs that we could do, and, uh, and it was great. Um, and then by that time, Def Jam was ready. Now, by then he had uh, Tayshawn, Orange Juice Jones, and Chuck Stanley. He had three, three fellas in front of me. So now I'm like, oh man, I'm thinking I'm getting ready to sign right now. No, nope, you signed, but you're not going to record for a minute. But that's fine. I did backgrounds on all of those and duets with all of those artists, Orange Juice Jones, Tayshawn, and Chuck Stanley, and some other projects that came through with Big Daddy Kane and some soundtracks, um, uh, Less Than Zero, which uh, Rick Rubin was a part of, and um, and and stuff with uh, some really wonderful pop artists. Um, and, and so it was, a, it was a great experience. I made myself a road manager so that I could go on the road and, and, and make sure things would be um, as they needed to be by the time I came into fruition. Uh, because the industry is real funny. You know, they looked at Russell like, yeah, okay, this little rap thing you got. And then when it got on, it was like, come hither, young man. Let us embrace you and show you the ropes. Well, then the same thing happened when he decided he wanted to put an R&B division together for his record label. Oh, man, you know, you got the rap thing. What the hell do you know about R&B, whatever? And then he put out hits, and he put out integrity-worthy uh, music. So they had to once again come back again. 
But that's what happened uh, with my coming into um, into Def Jam. I, I, I didn't know whether um, it would be a good fit, but I knew that that was where my home was. And I knew that all of the artists that were there, Public Enemy, Houdini, um, uh, LL Cool J, all of these uh, uh, fledgling rap artists were like my brothers and they embraced me and we went on with it. Right. I and was I, happy to be with them and they were happy to say, we got a singer over here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, and they did the same thing with, the, with, uh, with my male counterparts. So um, to answer your question, I never, I never looked back or, or had any, um, had any, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In, inhibitions. Mm -hmm. I never felt like anything like it didn't fit because I knew that it was going to happen before anybody else knew. I was part, I'm a, I'm a, I mean, founding member of Def Jam, a cornerstone member. I knew when Def Jam was just a, an idea in Russell's head, said I gotta find something to do with my brother. He's beating up my mother's pots and pans and the side of the couch is crazy because he keeps making beats. I gotta do something. I knew about this. When we came together, we chose the colors. We chose the logo. We chose, you know, we, we did all that together. Wow. That is because when you think of Def Jam and their legacy, their impact, I mean, the logo with the tone on the colors, because whenever you saw those Def Jam jackets, I wasn't on Def Jam. I wanted a jacket. Right. Right. We built that. We built that. And I was a part of those building blocks. Wow. And one thing I found amazing about you is that you embrace rap early on when a lot of established R&B or people of the different genres that weren't young were saying, this is a fad, this is going to go but away. But I had to. I was making rap. I was part of what rap was. Mm -hmm. And the good thing was is that from my theater and dance background, I realized that rap didn't just start when they think it did. Rap and call and response has been a part of the African-American uh, situation from the beginning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, it might have been in another language. It might have been uh, in a different rhythmic pattern. But we've always spoken our words over a rhythm. Mm -hmm. the, we've the, always told our story over a rhythm. We've yep. always done Yep. The Griots, Last Poets, exactly. Jill Scott exactly. Heron, all laid the foundation the of what was poet, to come with Sugar Hill Gang Martin, and everything else Dr. after that. Dr. Angelou, they've all done it. They've all done it. So it all came, it's all, many DJs from back in the day that, you know, that, that, that Eddie OJ, who, who OJs were named after, you know, all of these people had already implemented what we know as a, uh, you know, it's call and response and it's rap. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's part of our, it's part of our ancestry. It's part of our legacy. It's part of our black blackliciousness. Mm, all of That's this melanin. Ooh. All of this, I know you like how do I say that, all of this melanin, like you're going to sprinkle some melanin on there. Melanin. Spicing it up, livening it up. Mm -hmm. And when New Jack Swing was popping, Full force laid the groundwork for what Teddy did. When Teddy came out with I Wanna for Key Sweat, he told a story how Frankie Crocker had played it on BLS for Slamming the Jamming. And the audience wasn't really feeling it. But Frankie said, this is going to be a hit, whether you like it or not. So what was your take once Teddy Riley came out with the whole New Jack Swing sound and Guy and how he just had R&B on lockdown with his sound? Okay, so let me tell you what really happened because I was there. 
<laughs> that's gonna be our new. That's gonna be our new catchphrase. Let me tell you what really happened because I was there. So now, back in the early '70s, there were many, many clubs uh, in Harlem. Uh, of course, uh, they would be uh, considered what they call the Chitlin Circuit, but they were really full-fledged clubs with real full-fledged audiences that spent plenty of money and came to see us perform. One of the groups I was with uh, was a group called Jamila. Uh, and when they reconfigured, they had been a, a, a male self-contained singer band, and they reconfigured and decided they needed a female, and they got me. Well, who was the lead singer or one of the lead singers? Uh, there was a gentleman, um, because I want to call his name, I can't call him right now, but the other one was Keith Sweat. So um, I was with Jamila, and we used to, uh, the band used to go and sneak and bring Teddy Riley to the club. Because Teddy was too young to be in the club, and he was little anyway. He was a small stature man. I'm just saying, he was little, really little. And we used to sit him on a couple of, uh, uh, what do you call them, telephone books. When you said telephone books. The yellow he pages. he would play the piano. He would play the piano uh, like a demon. Uh, you know, he was a prodigy. If you went to his house, and he came from the projects, and you went in his room, he had every keyboard and every gadget that, that before we even got him, everything that came from Japan, because his family supported him and they knew how special he was, so they made sure that he had everything. But um, like I said, a lot of places he couldn't come because he was too young, we'd sneak him in the club, and he'd get up and play and leave the people dumbfounded. And uh, and that's and that's how I, how long and how well I knew Teddy. Um, like I said, I was in the group with, uh, with, with Keith Sweat. That's how far we go back. Um, when Teddy came, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a surprise. And that fact that he was able to take uh, R&B music and give it um, a platform on top of gospel, that's what New Jack Swing is. It's R&B with, those, with, 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 the, with the guy vocals, you know what I'm saying? That's what made it click because it had that gospel feel, you know what I'm saying, in terms of soul, but it had an R&B root. And right. he figured it out. It was New Jack Swing. Right. Because for me, being four or five years old at the time when Groove Me and Make It Last Forever, oh, all of that came out. I mean, it was a completely <laughs> different shift from where R&B sounded before 87 because you had it Luther, you had Freddie Jackson. And um and and it, and it changed and it was just it was an incredible time to be a part of. You were four or five years old. I was in it. You know what I'm saying? So it really, really, you know, gave us a a, a taste of what was to come and what have you with real vocals. We didn't sacrifice the vocals. We brought better with better vocals, uh, um, or at least uh, I won't say better because I mean the other people that I had been raised on were absolutely incredible, but. Um, you know, um, to bring a different riff pattern and a different sound, a different sonic sound to the ear. It was incredible. And I was glad to be a part of it. Right. And you put out the Raw album in 89. And My Love is So Raw, the video, you guys were singing the vamp to I'm So Glad. I mean, blow wind, blow wind. Because I remember seeing the video on BT Heavy, and it was like a nightclub setting. And you guys were just going slam off. And once that beat hits, your voice meshed so well with that new Jack beat sound. And I think it was Big Daddy Kane sample of Raw. Big Daddy about to Kane, get raw. sample, My Love is Raw. Uh, shout out to Kane. And, you know, let me tell you about this. We we, we went to, my, we were very big in, in London and, and in the Europe and in the UK. So we went over to do a show called Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was the equivalent of... Um, Back in the day, you know, our Ed Sullivan show, our um, 
our Soul Train, our American Bandstand, you know, it was the music show. And if you were on top of the pops, you have made it. Um, the BBC produced it and it was it's just what we did. So we went over and did it. I filmed the same day as who has been around the world and I, I, I. Lisa Stansfield. We, we, we filmed the same day. And just to show you um, on the business end, you know, Lisa Stansfield was signed and, as a pop artist and that's what she did. So therefore her career took that turn. I was signed as an R&B artist from Def Jam to Columbia, or at that point, uh, uh, soon it would turn to Sony. But it's just a different, a whole different landscape. And, um, you know, once again, that was a learning experience. So we went over to do Top of the Pops, and my songs were popping so hard that I could not leave for six or seven months. I had to stay in the UK. They had to get me an apartment. They had to set me up with a, you know, it was just, I was a resident of the UK um, because of how, um, the singles were popping. Um, and Raw, one of them after Sleep Talk, Raw was filmed in London. And we had to figure out how to make, take a space, make it look like a club in the United States, yeah, hopefully uptown Harlem or the Bronx. We had to dress that, make sure that we could get someone who was going to style the dancers and the, and the extras so they looked like hip hop. They looked like uptown. They looked like, you know, we couldn't, we didn't want it to look, you know, too, too glossy, too, too, you know, we had to look a little dingy. You know what I'm saying? It had to look like Harlem. It had to look like street. And we filmed that in, in London. Um, there's a little part where um, you'll see the Def Jam logo on somebody's jacket. That was Russell sitting in the audience being an extra. Um, we had uh, the lead singer from Change, one of the, uh, the sec second strings, uh, when, they, when they revamped the group. Um, he was there as well. Rick Brennan was one of the extras in the audience. And, of course, I had Chuck Stanley as part of my background uh, lineup with uh, George Morton and uh, Lee Truesdale. We had an incredible live band once again. We had to make it all up because we were in London and we couldn't leave because Allison Williams was hot. Right. And that's I can the one remember selling out, I can remember selling out in the West End of London. Um, I can't remember the theater right now, but uh, Diana Ross was in town and she did not sell out on her concert night. Not to say she didn't sell, but we were sold out and she wasn't. Wow. And I just recently did an interview with uh, Sybil and she was telling me how the UK are, they are very, very loving of American R&B and how you can just, like you said, you can stay working over there if you get a couple of hit records under your belt. You could be on top of the pops or any of the underground pirate radio stations at the time or Kiss FM. Now. We did all of that. We did. When I tell you, we did. We did the pirate stations. We did the BBC stations. We did the uh, top of the pops. We. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of work. I mean, there were times when I would just have to stay before they got me the place to stay. I'd have to stay in a hotel all day long, and then the press would just come to me. I'd do three and four hours and then take a break, eat, and then they'd start up again. All of the publications, all of the magazines, all of the rags, all of the, it was just incredible. And I remember doing that for almost like, I did, I did, that, I did that for almost two or three days in a row one time, just everybody. It was, wow. I, I mean, it was a box full of magazines and, and I was featured in everyone. Wow. Covers and, and it was really, um, it, it's the equivalent of what you see with the artists now. The difference is that we didn't have the internet to cover it. We didn't have the internet to, to, to put a light on it so that everybody could see what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And see, once everybody sees what you're doing, 
then that's when everybody uh, comes and, and becomes your fan. And then you have your followers and you have your clicks and your this and your bot and the boo and the bot. We didn't have it that way then. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, people didn't know. I'm just saying um, it was just a different way of, of doing things. Right. And, and it rendered different results is what right. I, I guess I'm saying. Right. And but how you did, go to, I, can go to, I can go to the UK right now if I could get on a plane and they'd accept me. You know, in this COVID environment, I could work right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, the European audience, um, UK and beyond, have always um, respected R&B music. They've respected the artists. They've respected, um, you know, to a point where most of the time when you um, sell a CD, overseas the inside of it is going to be different there's going to be a slightly different jacket maybe a different picture even uh, certainly different inside information more information and what i've found and i've come to know with the european audiences is that they they read liner notes they know who your band members are. They they know what you you know who did this and who did that. So when they come to see you live, they're looking for these people, and they you know they have, you know they have um, I guess um, garnered a, a a relationship uh, because they've seen them play. You know I saw you play with this and I saw you play with that. And I said, so they put the two and two together and they really want to. They 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 they're just. They're just super fans, you know what I'm saying? And it goes deeper than fandom. It's really, you know, they get into who you are as an artist and what you bring to the table, and and uh, and and it and it and it stays with you and it stays with them. Um, I can recall uh, doing shows and people would have albums stacked up this thick, all in plastic coverings to preserve them and to, and to keep them pristine. And all they want you to do is sign their album. Can you please sign my 12 albums? Wow. And they would, would they, they would travel with that to the show and pay their money for their ticket and sat in the audience and afterwards, that's all they want at the end of the night. Please, I want a picture and I want you to sign my albums. But they're that invested. And so Sybil was absolutely on point in, in what she said. They're that vested in you to, you, you, it's, it's such a difference. I'm not saying anything against the United States and our audiences here on our home uh, ground, but it's, an, it's, it's, it's to another level. Right, yeah, because I interviewed um, KG. He was a member of the 90s R&B pop group M8. He was telling me how him and his friends, they would spend boatloads of money on just U.S. imports and just soak it all up. And then once they got into the industry, they just took what they were listening to over here in the States and just added their own UK flavor to it. And that's why it was so amazing to see the likes of Loose Ends, 52nd Street, Five Star, and Soul to Soul take off over here in America. Mm -hmm. And you know, 50, um, not 52nd Street, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, Soul to Soul was one of my uh, producers as well. Wow, I did not know On that. On the first album, there was a, a single called I Need Your Lovin', which did pretty good. Then Soul to Soul got a hold of it. And when Soul to Soul re-released it and we, you know, did a remix, the seed, the, the, it made the CD stay on the Billboard Top 100 for 67 weeks. Wow. And the only other album that did that for that year was Madonna's Like a Prayer. Now, understand there are only 52 weeks in a year. So if you go to 67, you flipped over the calendar. And that's what the production of that that particular song brought into fruition. Wow. 
Now, how did Just Call My Name come about and it is still a staple on The Quiet Storm? Well, let me tell you about that because I was there for that too. <laughs> um, I was scheduled to take a trip across country in a Volkswagen. And I did. It was incredible. In the meantime, the producer of, uh, of, um, of, um, of Just Call My Name, the writer, um, I know you have it in front of you, so you get So our writers were, uh, I cannot think right now, but at any rate, uh, the writer um, had been a really incredible uh, keyboardist and had been doing a lot of uh, all the sessions and all of the Broadway stuff. He was playing in the pit. Kendall, 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 uh, what is his last name? Uh, it's slipping out of my head. But at any rate, he went to the West Coast. It, uh, the call had come and Quincy Jones was loving on him and all the Herbie Hancocks and all the different ones. And he had become the golden child out there and uh, was doing all the sessions. And he was doing a session and he knew I came to town and he said, listen, I'm not going to have a time to, to get with you because I spend my whole day in the studio. And then by the time it's time for dinner, I got to schmooze with these people and then be up the next day to do what I got to do. And I'm writing all these songs. And so I said, okay, I'll come to I'm in LA, I'll come to the studio. So I go and I spend a day in the studio. And of course I'm listening and I'm hearing a song and I'm playing Pong and I'm you know, just doing what I gotta do. So at the end of the day, um, it, in the, that day they were laying the backgrounds for this song they had written and uh, called Just Call My Name. And it was uh, James Ingram's brother's name is James Ingram, Philip Ingram from Switch. <laughs> Very well-known, very sought-after um, writer and songwriter, singer, and background vocalist. He's doing the backgrounds. They did. They said, Alston, go in there and give us a female version. Because he had sung the male lead. You know, just because this song was to be on a tape, let's say tape, that was going out to various record companies for, for consideration. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Alison Williams. It was everybody, anybody. So I went in and I sang the song. I knew the song when I heard it. I loved it. I couldn't say nothing. I was a guest just hanging out. And um, the producer looked at me and he said, after we finished, he pushed the button from inside of the uh, studio. He says, are you in love? I said, no, not necessarily at the time. He said, are you trying to be in love? I said, no, not really. He says, I just want to know, how did you know how this song was supposed to be sung and, and how to really voice it like that? Because this is a song that's you saying this like somebody who's experiencing these lyrics. At any rate, I knew that, I knew before I went in and sang it that I wanted it. So I called Russell and I told him, I said, I found this song and you got to, get with the producer and y'all have to make it happen. It's gotta be mine. And that's how I got Just Call My Name wow. as, as to my song. Just because I was visiting with a friend, um, you know, and, and, and he asked me to go and sing it. Um, the, the, the back story is he came to New York. We're gonna record it in New York. All live musicians, um, Omar Hakeem, uh, Barry, oh man, it was just, it was just an, an incredible group of musicians and alive, and I think that's what has attributed to the um, longevity of Just Call My Name, because even though the layman audience, the listening audience might not know, you know, 
the difference between uh, digitally produced or electronically produced music, there's something that is innate to us as human beings and you cannot re replace hu the human element. So all of those instruments that were played live is what a person is hearing, it's what's hitting their ears and it's what makes you fall in love with it in a deep, deep way. In that way that Just Call My Name resonates with people. So they came in New York. He, uh, he came to New York to do the, uh, to do the, uh, the production. And um, he called all these great musicians. And when we finished the session, three, four in the morning, like I love to work at night. And that's what we did. Around five or six, I'm home and the studio calls me and says, uh, we're looking for Russell. I said, well, you got the wrong number. Russell doesn't live here. I'm, it's Allison. Um, okay. Um, I said, give you Russell's number. And um, I said, what's going on? He said, we'll call you back. <laughs> What come to find out what happened is the intern that was working with the uh, engineer in the studio, who was Roddy Way, by the way, uh, shout out to Roddy. Um, they accidentally erased the first verse of the song. Mm. Mind you, everybody's gone. Do you know what I'm saying? They're yeah. gone. They're going back. Wherever they live, uh, uh, the producers going back to LA. The key, uh, Omaha came up in Westchester or in Connecticut. Everybody's gone. This is a live recording. So how do we get this? Oh, it was mm -hmm. it was just it was incredible. Till this day, we had issues with um, you know the producer had to go and reschedule a new um, a new um, uh, studio session for us to get it. Now I only had to sing the first verse, <clears throat> and they teased me because they're like. Allison, if we let you keep making corrections, or you, I'm a perfectionist. So they were, they always teasing me and say, you'd still be singing Just Call My Name if we let you. But, you know, like I said, we sang it once in LA, we sang it twice in New York, and that's Just Call My Name in one oh, take. Man. Wow. Because I, I had to first verse again. Um, but everything I did, I did it in one take. And um, just call my name it has that feel. It has that feel of in the moment. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not, fake or, or or manufactured you know what i mean mm, definitely organic and you mentioned philip ingram for those who don't know philip ingram is brother of james ingram and in the formerly of the group switch yes absolutely i just i'm still trying to, to be i'm closer. still trying to find the producer's name and the writer of the song if you if you're able to bring it up in front of you please find that for me because i can't touch this phone or else i'll i'll mess up everything but um he's from queens originally one of those queens boys like uh uh um, um Oh my gosh, there's so many great musicians out of, you know, Marcus Miller and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, oh, what's the trumpet player's name? Funky for Jamaica. Tom Brown. Uh, Tom Brown. All of those great folks came out of, you know, came out of Queens and what have you. So this, this brother was, uh, part of that, that, uh, particular, uh, circle. Um, and like I said, sometimes I'm, really good and some of them really not <laughs> right and that is a classic record still getting played on the quiet storm to this day and on the raw album you did a cut with mr orange juice jones and you did a separate cut with ted wizard mills from the legendary group blue magic, blue magic. yes hi ted hi juice oh man we had a great time um you can't even imagine what it was like for me to be able to do you know people might not know but Almost anybody who came through rap, I don't even care if it was just for 15 minutes, they were on Def Jam. 
if they came through rap, they were on the label for a moment. Um, and what people don't know is that Def Jam also signed other R&B acts. That was Russell's uh, thing. He wanted to recreate those things that he listened to, those songs. You know, we had blue light and red light parties in our basements, and we, we had great uh, music, like like uh, the Dramatics and, and, and the Dells and, and, and uh, uh, Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight, and he wanted to pay homage to that music. So he started an R&B division for Def Jam. It was called Original Black Records was the label, Original Black Records. And, um, and for a moment, Blue Magic was one of our, our one of our acts, so it it only stands the chance that I had an opportunity to do duet do a duet, and uh, they were all still together as a unit, and uh, Ted was the uh, was the lead singer, and I can't tell you how how I just Blue Magic brought me through my adolescence. You know what I'm saying? It, all the awkward stages. That was a, that was my sit in your room and put a record on the record player. And, and dream about the boyfriend you wished you had those days. You know what I'm saying? Right. We all did that. Right. And that was magic for me. You know, before I was old enough to go to a club or go out or, or even have a boyfriend, that was blue magic for me. And to be able to sing with them, do shows with them, record with them, it was just incredible. And we and we, we have a, a friendship, um, all of them, all of the brothers, we have a friendship that, that, uh, that, that cannot be broken. They are family. Right. And as we saw in the New Edition miniseries, Brooke Payne stated that Blue Magic was the template that inspired them to put New Edition together. Then, of course, Thank Bobby. And then Don't Be Cruel, Bobby went to being a worldwide megastar. And that album was mainly produced by L.A. and Babyface, which leads to the sophomore album. And you covered Just My Luck by The Deal off of their album Street Beat. So how did that come about? And did you get L.A. and Babyface's approval? Well, you know, back at that point in time, you know, the record label is going to try to find the uh, the hottest producers of the time, and that was L.A. and Babyface. But on the business end, you know, like I said, you learn a lot of lessons if you're paying attention. Um, they were probably requiring X amount of dollars for anything that they did. Um, so now you have to talk to Columbia or Sony. I think it was Columbia at that time. No, it's Sony probably, there's a second album. Sony and Def Jam, who's gonna pay for it? Who's gonna pay for it? Here we got a call, we need gas, who's paying for the gas? Well, I guess somebody decided to come in for the gas, but they didn't fill the tank up, so they paid this amount of money, not this amount of money. How does that turn out? Okay, that means that we got, L we got Babyface to do it. We got them to do it, but he didn't come in himself and do it. He had his, um, right-hand man come in and they chose to do one of their songs. If we're going to do a song, we're going to want do one of their songs. That way, if it's a hit, it's a double hit because now you have, you own that song. You get it? Mm -hmm. You own Just My Luck. So you didn't write me a new song. And if we're going to cover something, because that's the amount of money y'all came with, Def Jam Columbia uh, or Def Jam Sony, then we're going to cover one of my songs because that way I can ensure I'm going to win on either side. Mm -hmm. Get the bite, and so that's how uh, just my luck came about. Which I was fun. I thought it was a great production. I thought it was a uh, well done. I thought it was a great choice, and what have you. But it just, you know, like I said, you learn things if you're paying attention in this industry um, about how the deals are made. 
Right. You definitely don't want to sign on the X and the quote third base. Don't want to end up with a box of Newports and Puma sweats because if you just sign on the dotted line, you're going to get taken advantage of because contracts are not set up in the artist's favor. Most of the time, no. So you have to be paying attention very clearly and you have to surround yourself with people who have your best interest at heart. I was lucky to have incredible um, people surrounding me. Kendall Mentor has been my attorney since I was a, since I was a, a kid. My first contracts um, prior to even high fashion. You know, I was in my 20s when high fashion came. Russell wanted to call the first album 21. All right, shout out to Adele who finally figured it out 100 years later, but that was what he wanted to call it. I was 21 years old. But prior to that, I had some other um, music uh, dealings and Kendall was uh, the one who guided guiding me and my parents, you know, the right way, um, to, you know, in order to make the right deal. So what happens like that? And still uh, there were, um, what's the word, uh, there were, things that happened, like for instance, um, Rush Productions was the management agency for Def Jam Records. So you got Russell is Rush and Russell is Def Jam. There's a conflict of interest right there, but we don't know this. We don't know this because we're new. The label's new, the management's new, Russell's new. We're all going into a place that we don't realize that there needs to be a separation so that there can be um, fairness. And everything is not right on top, on top of each other. You know, there were a lot of different things like that. But we learned as we went along. We had to learn those things. Right. And what a wonderful ride it was. And a great opportunity to not only make music, memories, and money, but to create a culture that now has its own legacy. Uh, of course, we have to try to protect, protect it because sometimes the legacy that we created seems like it wants to go down the toilet. Or, um, but we're, we're working it out. Right. We're, you know, we're trying to make sure that hip-hop and rap and all of those entities that created a culture of its own, that, that it continues to be something we can be proud of. Right. And you mentioned Rush Management, and I believe at this time it was ran by the late Andre Harrell, who studied under Russell, who went to form Uptown, and a young man came in to be his A&R, Mr. Sean Diddy Combs, who later left Uptown to create Bad Boy. So what was your take on seeing Andre create Uptown, bringing in Jodeci, Mary J, and just taking the world by storm? Okay, so here it is. And what are we getting ready to do? Tell you how I was there. First of all, let me take you a little further back with, uh, with Andre Harrell. He was, along with a gentleman named Alonzo Brown, a member of a group that was signed to Def Jam called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. High. Genius, so they right. had so, right, so they had a rap group, and their whole thing was they were rappers, but they were suited down, suited up, knotted up, you know what I mean? And that was their thing. Um, he left, the, you know, they did what they did for Dr. Jack Lewis Hyde, and whatever, and they went on their own separate ways in the industry on the business end. And you're right, Andre did uh, run um, a couple of divisions for Russell and what have you. But the thing I remember most is that Andre would talk to Russell and say, Man, Russell, you need to let Allison do. Uh, I remember I had produced a show at a, at a well-known nightclub restaurant in New York called Sweetwaters, and I had a, a, an R&B um, show there, and I and it turned into a big production with a big band and a full R&B rhythm section and horns and background singers and about six other performers, and it ended up uh, started as Allison Williams and Friends, but it ended up being "Ain't No Mountain High Enough," a review of the Motown sound. 
Um, it was such a good show that Motown came and sued the club and shut us down under the pretense of this is an idea that we have for a show at a later date. Basically, this was the 80s. I didn't see anything from Motown until Motown the Musical. How many years was that? But it happened. Um, and we all, you know, we had to disband and, 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 uh, and figure out other things to do. But at the end of the day, you know, Russell would bring tables of people every week to see this show. It was grand for months and months at this club. And uh, Andre would say to Russell, man, Allison needs to really, really go ahead and uh, cover that uh, song that she's doing. In the show, they talked about Gladys Knight and the Pips, how they were at the very forefront of Motown. And, you know, we just told the Motown story and um, we would do If I Were Your Woman. So Russell had a fear of my being uh, taken to, he had a fear of me being put in the wrong category because they had obviously a very young, a young oriented thing that they were trying to do with Def Jam. But he knew I was a, a nightclub singer and he knew that I knew how to put on a gown and, 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 and be very mature, but he had, he had to find a way to balance it. But he didn't listen. Russell didn't listen all the time. So what happened was when Andre got a chance to have his own label and, uh, and, and sign artists like Mary J. Blige, Mary J. Blige did the covers. Mary J. Blige did Sweet Thing. And Russell had already, you know, Andre had already told him, you need to do this, you need to do that. But Russell was afraid that if he had me cover certain songs from the past, that people wouldn't, would take me as an older artist. It was something weird in his head that he was thinking about. Um, same thing with, uh, with Stephanie Mills, uh, when she covered If I Were Your Woman. At that point, he was in a relationship with Cassandra Mills. And... Andre said so and so and so and Russell took that back and they're you know hanging out and laying down and whatever it is and he spoke about it whatever it is you speak about to your significant other at home and next thing you knew Stephanie Mills come wow Um, it could turn to be good for her. Um, I don't know how many numbers they did, and I don't know how long it, or where it got to on the charts, but just to give you an idea of, you know, the mindset of an Andre Harrell um, and how that friendship between he and Russell, you know, they, they, they were, there were deals to be made and there were decisions to be made, and um, some, some of them took and some of them didn't. Wow. And you mentioned Stephanie Mills, the 80s and 90s, it was stacked for female R&B singers, you know, yourself, Stephanie Mills, Patti LaBelle, the late, great Phyllis Hyman. I mean, we could just go on and on of the list of all the female acts that were out and just killing it, where if you didn't have vocals... Don't come in because you were going to get swamped. And you mentioned Sweetwaters. This was the same Sweetwaters club where Mr. Golden Ears himself, Clive Davis, came and sat and saw a young lady singing backgrounds with her mother, Sissy Houston, and that is Whitney. So let me tell you how that went down. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, 
Yes, indeed. She was singing with her mom and she was singing with her mom at the Sweetwaters and places like McHale's and what have you. Um, when I first headlined uh, Sweetwaters, because you would get a, a cross section of uh, major recording artists as well as Broadway people. So you might have a Curtis Mayfield in there and you might have the Dells and you might have uh, 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 Nat King Cole's brother, Frank, Frank, Freddie Cole's. You might have all these different people. And then, um, uh, so so it was a wonderful thing for me to get in there as a headliner because I was the youngest person to really have headlined there before I even did the Motown review, um, but coming in just as a singer. Um, but when they got a chance to do Whitney and it was time to do Whitney's showcase night, all of the press, of course, another thing to, 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 to put into the press was Whitney Houston, the youngest uh, artist to ever headline at Sweetwaters, but that wasn't true. I was the youngest person. Now, of course, I was in my 20s or whatever the case may be. But at the at that point, you know, we were all in in the same age category. But when it when the first the the youngest person to headline at Sweetwaters was me. But of course, when they got ready to do the press and what have you, that was just something else to put into the into the uh, you know into the cattle, which was fine. It didn't take nothing away from me, but um, I remember those days when Nippy was singing with her mom, and they would do home, and she, you know, me and you against the world. They had a really nice repertoire of uh, songs they did together, and and songs that she would feature on, and she was incredible, right? Incredible, right? But and those, and those are the days I knew her from, right? And of course, she went on to become the world's biggest pop star crossed over broke boundaries and we miss her every day we certainly do we certainly do mm. now tell me a little bit about did you have any interactions with uh phyllis hyman did i phyllis hyman um i i i, I actually i would go and see phyllis at all of the different uh nightclubs in new york uh russ brown peter brown's mckell's and um Joe Lewis, I want to say, was his name. Was it Joe or John? Joe Lewis. At any rate, he was manager managing her at the time, and we uh, we met um, at the same time. I met Mr. Lonnie Plexico and an incredible drummer whose name, um, oh gosh, he played on the Tonight Show for a long time. I can't call his name. Anyway, we all met at the same time, and um, like I said, Phyllis, I was a fan of Phyllis Hyman, but I was lucky enough to forge a relationship that led to us being a friend, uh, uh, led, us be, led to us being friends, um, sister friends, and it led to a sisterhood and a mentorship, and um, I can only tell you that uh, as complicated a person as she was, she was the true essence of love and the thing that makes you want to do right. Although she was plagued with her own issues and demons, as we all are, she was not perfect, she was flawed, but at her heart, Phyllis was everything you want. And boy, was she funny. We used to have a great time. Um, and, I, and, and a lot of people, um, I guess what's the word, uh, they said um, that I reminded them of her because I was very tall and statuesque and so on and so forth. And coming from the jazz R&B background, you know, I, they could compare us. Um, then uh, my choice, my choice, not necessarily because of Phyllis, but certainly, I guess, influenced to uh, create the image that I had with the crowns and, you know, to be, um, 
just a more elegant or, 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 you know, as elegant as you could be coming from the hip hop label and, and, and trying to be street and, 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 and young, which I was, um, but it really, uh, like I said, people began to um, compare us um, and, and, um, and it wasn't a bad company to be in. Um, like I said, we were friends until the end. Um, I have a one-woman Phyllis Hyman show uh, called Old Friend, Allison Williams Sings Tribute to the Legendary Phyllis Hyman. And that has been in existence since 1990-something. Uh, um, when Phyllis uh, transitioned, it's a very, we don't even have the time. We have to come back for a part two to tell you everything. Um, or they are, you know, your listeners can wait for the book or the biopic, whatever. But um, it was very intertwined as the universe is. Uh, so to be short with it, um, a year to her passing, a week from her, a week to her passing, we were together. And a week later, she was gone. A year to her being gone, I was asked to come and be in a play called Thank God the Beat Goes On, starring the Whispers, to play Phyllis Hyman in the play, a year to the, to the, to the month of her death. Um, so there are some very, um, uh, people would say circumstantial or even use the word ironic or, um, you know, when it, when it seems real spooky and you don't know how that happened and who, you know, it, it, people would say that. But like I said, the two-way universe, um, right. yeah, we had an opportunity to share those moments. And um, like I said, they're, they're deeper than what I can explain to you right yeah. explain to you right now. But Yeah, Phyllis vocally you know, was no joke. Phyllis Simon and I were, uh, were, were uh, certainly friends. Yeah, Phyllis vocally was no joke. I mean, she could take a jingle about singing about Burger King Whoppers, making it soulful. Like, I want to go to the store and give me a Welch's Grape Sword. I mean, to take a jingle and to she make it soulful, she could sing the phone book and have it sound good. That's how good of a vocalist she was. And then also, too, another underrated female vocalist that I think don't get enough attention, Mickey Howard. Oh, Miss Mickey. So Mickey and I, um, we're working on a project right now uh, that tells the story of uh, Billie Holiday and Carmen McRae. And that's all I can say right now. But um, I had an opportunity to work with Mickey just before COVID set in. You know, she was living in Chicago and she had a res residency at the Chicago Winery. And people may know the winery as being a franchise nightclub that is uh, in about six different uh, states across the six different cities across the states. And she invited me to come on the Valentine's uh, week um, and perform with her. And we had a great time. So that is my good Judy sister friend. When I tell you, me and, me and Mickey Howard go back like car seats. So. That's all I have to say about Mickey Howard, or as we like to call her, Miss Michelle. All right. And then also, I would be remiss if we didn't mention the late Curtis Hairston and BBQ band. Curtis Hairston from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I mean, vocally, he was no joke either. His stuff on BBQ. Had, had, Curtis, had Curtis lived, he would be one of the premier vocals because he had that thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, in, a, in a time when we had Glenn Jones and Miles Jay and we had 
uh, 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 Johnny Kemp, and we had our Luther already, and we had all of these great male singers. And here came Curtis Hairston with his little country is corn stuff. When I tell you, just a week ago, I re I re uh, re uh, convened with his brother, Clarence, through a whole nother situation um, that, that 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 really um, takes place down here. In uh, in uh, in Amelia Island here at American Beach, in uh, and um, through a whole other friend that that we had no connection, but he mentioned my name, and the person was like, "Oh, really? You know Allison Williams? Well, guess who Allison Williams is to me?" And she put me on the phone, and it was Curtis's brother. And um, I said, "You have no idea how amazing it is to hear from you because I've just moved to Winston Salem." Wow! See how God works. And Curtis was the one who originally you know, kind of put me in touch with Curtis because his mother was a poet and a storyteller and he, that was his home. So it's, it's, it's all connected in such amazing ways. It's kind of spooky sometimes. Right, right. You know, right. What I mean? the connectiveness, yeah. the connective fibers that, that make up this life that we live. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. it is. Curtis Harrison, I mean, Jeannie, Dreamer. And I have I want you- my favorite is Shining Star. Do you love Shining Star? Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, I do. You're my shining star. That's what you are. And Curtis, in turn, sang on my album, too. That's how we used to do. It was incredible. Right. And I want to get you out of here on this. You got any music that's out there? What are your thoughts now on the streaming age and how artists are pretty much cutting out the middleman, putting the material straight directly to the consumer, and that it seems more younger artists are coming aware of the business now because of the internet. Jarella, you put me out. You just told me I'm going to get me out of here. You put me out. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to put I'm you gonna out. Tell you. I'm getting ready to tell you I'm not leaving until I feel like it. Okay. <laughs> Take all the time you I'm need. <laughs> I'm messing with you. I'll tell you this. I think that the internet, um, you know, I have, uh-oh. I have the, um, I can't tell you. I, I, I got to digress for one second. I'm, I'm a nature person. And like I said, I'm visiting with my friends down in American Beach. There's the turtle about this big. I can't, I, my, my hands can't just crossing the road right now. He's huge. And I'm just, I caught my eye. But anytime I see God's creatures, I just feel so blessed. So I got caught up and he was crossing. He made it to the other side. I'm good. Okay. Now, uh, as you were asking uh, about new music, I think the internet, uh, as much as I hate it, because I think that uh, there's so many, um, well, I just don't get along with the internet. I don't get along with technology. If you say click and drag, it's not going to click and drag for me. And it's always been like that. But I know that I need it. I know that it's a part of our life. So I accept it and I keep it moving. And, and you know, and I do the best that I can. And when I can't do it, I hire somebody to do it for me. Um, having said that, um, I think it's great that younger artists can uh, reach their audiences. Um, and I intend to take on all of the opportunities I can to continue to reach my audiences. Uh, not, necessarily, not necessarily cutting out the middleman, but being able to do it on a level where you can do it on your own um, to a certain extent. You still need capital to make it happen. Unless you're 12 and you leak a song and it just happens to be Justin Bieber. And, you know, some people can make it happen, but you know, I'm not that. That's not where I stand. I'm a grown person, a woman of a certain age, who's laid a certain foundation and who, um, and who uh, has a career and, and is continuing to try to have a career. 
the beauty that I've realized now in the, in the internet and, and the World Wide Web is in the COVID situation, in a COVID environment, it now becomes even more crucial that you know what, where, and how, who, what, where, where, and how, who, what, where, when, and how you can reach your audience and, and have them consume your music, your product, whatever it might be, because that's how we're going to live. And whatever the new normal is, we're going to have to figure it out. And, and it might be in a box. It's like I'm in a box with you right now. Mm -hmm. You think outside the box so you can figure out how to do it in the box. That's what's really going on. And anybody who doesn't realize that, has to figure that out, is going to get left behind. It's just what it is. Right. And so, like I said, the beauty of it is, is that there's a generation of young people who came out of the womb knowing how to do this and how to make it work. Um, and I need to connect with as many of them as I can so that when I need help, I got the help and the support that I need. Um, I have new music coming out. We're trying to release it. We, you know, we, have a, we had a bigger budget before COVID, but now we have what we have. So we're pulling out all of our favors and we're pulling out you know, all of the stops to try to make sure that we can get it to, the, uh, to, to, our, um, to our audience as a sneak preview preview because we realized the holidays are coming and um, a full-fledged release would not be in our interest for the top of the year. Absolutely. I'm going to have to swing you around because it has begun to rain and I'm going to just swing myself to the other side so I'm not getting wet and so that um, ooh, you can see me oh, a little bit better. I was so so busy trying to give you um, the, um, the backdrop in the ocean that uh, maybe you needed to have me here all along. But at any rate, um, yeah, it's, it's really um, it's, it's an interesting time to uh, be releasing music, knowing that everybody doesn't have money, or everybody doesn't have time, or everybody doesn't have, everybody doesn't have everything that we're accustomed to having. You know what I'm saying? But, but we... But we're still trying to, music is coming out, movies are being released, you can live stream them or whatever. Television is still filming. There's, there's, there's 5,000 channels and networks and what have you. So as an artist, even though the concert halls, the arenas, the restaurants, the nightclubs, or whatever it is, wherever it is that you find your work as an artist on whatever level you find it, they are closed. That is not open to us right now. But there are people who are coming up with um Creative ways, drive up concert series uh, where, you know, they're utilizing their parking lots or their outdoor spaces, sidewalk cafe kind of situations or, or making it happen. So it's, it's a very interesting time. Um, I'm thankful that uh, God has shown favor on me to keep me in a mindset that wants to continue to put the music out keeps me blessed by giving me um, even some actual gigs where nobody else is making music. I've been able to make music virtually and live. And and, and even with you today, Jarrell, to be able to have a, a, someone who cares enough to want to do an interview and, and let the, uh, let, let the listeners and uh, let the fans, some who you'll know and some who who I don't know, some who will, will be discovering me for the first time, but somebody cares and wants to know who is this person. That's a blessing right now to be able to do that. So, you know, um, the new music, the album is Summer Nights in Harlem. 
We've got the first few songs together. We have to finish it, obviously. And we're going to do a crowdfunder to get that done. Summer Nights in Harlem is the title track. And The Romance of You, produced by myself and um, uh, Mr. Maurice Lynch. Uh, Ray Chu is on it as a uh, producer, as well as a, a string and piano. We have Christian McBride, Ulysses Owens, Christian Sands, Kirk Whalem, uh, Ron Blake, who else? Uh, 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 Solomon Hicks. So we have an incredible all-star cast uh, from the jazz world and beyond. I'm excited to be able to get back to my jazz roots. I've just finished working on a project with Najee. We've covered uh, the Norman Connor song, uh, Valentine Love, originally done by Gene Carn and Michael Henderson. It's really great, produced by uh, Chris Big Dog Davis. Um, I have some gospel things that are about to come out. I'm working with uh, Toots, uh, T.S. Monk, uh, Tupolone's Monk, um, they, they call him T.S. And uh, we've got some things going. Um, so I, I've got some house music that I did with Colonel Abrams. I've got to get it out into the world. You know what I'm saying? Great, great music that needs to be danced to and by someone who is well known in the, uh, in the dance and house genre and i have the tracks you know what i'm saying that i work with them so we're trying to try to the beauty of the, of the internet is that i don't have to wait for a label to tell me oh we don't want to confuse your audience or oh we'll get around to the christmas album which are all things that i've been told we'll get around to it we don't want to confuse your audience we don't they who are my audience are they stupid they know they get it if they like r&b they like jazz. If they like jazz, they'll like what I'm good. They'll just be another thing they can love about someone that they love. You know what I mean? And if they don't like it, then they don't have to come on my side until I do another thing that they like. If they like R&B and that's their thing, then they wait for the next R&B thing. Right. But imagine the things they can discover that I can do. Right. And so that's what I love about the internet and that's what's coming. Um, I have, I'm, I'm, I think I want to do a podcast kind of like you, you inspire me, but I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. I'm trying to work on it. I have some things in mind, um, but it's all about, you know, really, 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 um, how can I put it? Just celebrating life and, uh, celebrating the, the craft and the artist, the artistry that I've been gifted to do, um, uh, touching people, making them, you know, making giving them that thing that makes them want to go on every day. So if I can inspire somebody, you know, even in my darkest days, if I could get up the next day and help somebody pull it together and make it happen, that's what I want to do. Um, I want to teach. Dr. Angelou was my uh, mentor, and she used to say, when you get give, when you learn, teach. And just always do what's right. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do what's right. right. Even if I can't do it always, <laughs> I'm trying to do it most times. And so um, that's where I am right now, um, trying to know that television and film are my next platform. Uh, Mr. Perry, Mr. Tyler Perry, I'll be seeing you soon because we need to collaborate. Um, and more music, music, music. All right. We're definitely looking forward to everything you got coming down the pipe in the future. Any shout outs you want to give before we conclude and plug your social media? I want to shout out the world because if it weren't for the world and, and my fans um, all around the world, I would not be. Uh, social media, Allison Williams Music, if someone has a um, Allison Williams Music at AOL, if they have music they want to um, send me uh, because I do have a radio show, uh, WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem, but we are global. 
whcr.org. Please come and see us on Tuesdays. It's called Love Notes in the Chill Zone with Allison Williams on 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. W-H-C-R. That stands for Harlem Community Radio. So if you have music, I want to play it. I want to shine a light on you. I want to interview you. So AllisonWilliamsMusic.com. Allison Williams Music, I'm sorry, um, um, at AOL. Also, that's how you find me on Instagram, Allison Williams Music. Um, my website is being rebooted, but it is also AllisonWilliamsMusic.com. Um, and on Twitter, I think I'm just Allison Williams. I can't remember because I don't tweet that much, but uh, we're, we're looking forward to up, jump, jump starting all of our re rebooting uh, to a higher level, all of the different uh, media uh, platforms. This music is going to be available everywhere. Spotify, uh, Apple uh, Music, um, uh, CD Baby, uh, every place where it's supposed to be is going to be. Amazon It's going to be. We're, we're getting it all done and ready for a sneak preview. Um, and I just want to shout out, let people know, hey, once a month I uh, host the Sugar Bar, Ashford and Simpson Sugar Bar virtual open mic. My Thursday for this month of September will be the 17th. So come to Ashford and Simpson's Sugar Bar on a Thursday night, the 17th of September at 8 p.m. And you're going to get a great uh, open mic experience. If you want to sign up, you have to go to their website and do that. But I'm going to bring you some great performers. Um, and we'll do two hours of what we used to do in normal time. We do it in a virtual time for the Sugar Bar. Also, I want to ask you <clears throat> to please go to a place called I love my artist foundation.org. And I love my artist foundation.org is an organization um, developed by artists for artists. And we are trying to we are trying to put together a sustainable future for artists. So if something like this happens or any ready rainy day, even something that's not as you know all encompassing as COVID, that we as artists have a way to survive. Do you know what I'm saying? Whether we need uh, financial help, whether we need uh, uh, legal advice, whether we need medical attention, we need to be able to do that. Because a lot of times as artists, we're really good at being artists, but we don't get the other things quite down as well. You know, those adulting things, uh, budgeting and things of that nature. So when something like a COVID happens, we're left out and we, we have no way to survive because we live check to check. And so <clears throat> the I love my... Artist Foundation has put together a grant in the name of Mr. Ron Brandt, who was an incredible singer. We lost him um, uh, a couple of years ago, and we're, uh, we're paying into that so that we'll be able to help others as we go forward. They have put together what is called the Soul City Concert Series. And if you're in the New York City area, or even if you're not, we are going to be having, a, I'm going to be performing with the Nate Lucas All-Stars on September 18th. And uh, we can, you can stream it or you can go. It's an incredible uh, ticket that they're, that they're selling, which includes the show, which includes uh, a, a dinner and a drink and a gift bag and a meet and greet. You can't get it any place. You can't get it any place. Am I allowed to speak uh, dollars on your show, Gerald? Yeah, yes, you sure can. $60, $60 per. Now tell me where you can go out and spend $60 per person and get a show, a live show, 
uh, and your dinner and your cocktail and your gift bag and a meet and greet. And it just can't happen, especially not here. It's being held at a place called Sugar Hill in Brooklyn. Um, I don't, it's on Nostrand Avenue. And uh, you can go to I Love My Artist Foundation. Dot org. I love my artistfoundation.org and find out the information, purchase your tickets, please. Uh, it's outdoors. We have tables as well as cabanas. You can do a whole group and get, get uh, free bottles of champagne and all that, but they can give you all that information. So that's what's going on with me. I know it was lengthy, but that you asked for it, you got it. I sure did. Go to all her social platforms. Go to I Love My Artists. Dot org foundation. foundation.org foundation mm-hmm. yep go there check all of that out and be sure to follow the facebook page facebook.com forward slash beyond the album cover i'm on all major media platforms apple spotify iheart pandora beyond the album cover and video content at youtube.com slash j85 lowercase j number eight number five ladies and gentlemen the one the only miss allison wells right here on beyond the album cover thank you once again allison for doing this interview i wish you love and light peace and blessings miracles and music my love be safe and be well to all your listeners and supporters and thank you so much for being mine no thank you